Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. And I'm John Simon. John, we're here today to talk about persuasion. This is our second podcast on persuasion. Persuasion pretty much is everything that we do. It describes and encompasses every aspect of what a trial lawyer does. At the end of the day, we are trying to persuade a judge, persuade jurors that our position is correct and persuade them that the other side's position isn't. So everything we do from the beginning, from the interrogatories, written discovery, case selection, all the way to closing argument, it really has everything to do with persuasion. When a case comes in the door and I'm meeting with somebody, the first thing I'm thinking is, okay, is this credible, right? Is this believable? Is, you know, what is a jury going to think about this? And what does this fact mean? Is this fact important? Is it compelling? You know what, Eric? I would say this. I would say we've been talking about persuasion since we started the podcast. Okay. Every episode. Every episode has been about persuasion. What is persuasion overall? Because it's it's really describing what we do as trial lawyers and what does persuasion consist of? We had Rick Friedman on the show. I would tell our listeners, if you haven't read a book by Rick Friedman, I think he's written five and my advice is read every one you can get your hands on twice. Just a terrific, terrific guy, brilliant. And I think I've read four of his books and they're just all, they're terrific. They really are. In his latest book, The Way of the Trial Lawyer, what Rick talks about in the beginning of the book is persuasion and specifically he identifies three parts or components of persuasion. As soon as I read it, a light bulb went up and what it does is it allows me to take everything that I've learned about trial practice and fit it into the three categories that he identified that make up persuasion. It made me think, wow, that is, that's what we do. We're professional persuaders. That's what we do for a living. We persuade people. The three types of persuasion that Rick identified was one logos, logic. We make logical arguments to persuade people. The second was pathos. He describes it as suffering, person's experience, appeal to thoughts or emotions of your audience. And the final one, which is primarily what his book is about, is the ethos or person's moral character, how your character or fundamental values affect your ability to persuade. More specifically, I think in his book, to do what we do day to day, you know, to be a trial lawyer. I'd like to start out our, our discussion of persuasion by looking at those three parts or three elements. And I kind of look at it as the three-legged stool, logic, emotion, and the last one, it's sometimes described as credibility. And I, I think it's better described as trust, gaining the jury's trust. As you did, I really enjoyed Rick's thoughts. And there's a number of take-homes, and I urge people to listen to the podcast because he speaks so well about what he's contemplated. But you don't stop being a human being just because you go into the courtroom. He makes a strong claim about what you call trust and what he calls ethos. And it's that it's the most powerful form of persuasion. Rick very much follows the, the work of Aristotle. And Aristotle, I don't know if you've read much of his work on rules, but a lot of people would think, well, rules are where you get morality. Rules are where you figure out what to do. And Aristotle was very much against that. He said they can't take you where you're going to go because whenever you have a rule, you have to have guidance on when to apply that rule. And so what Aristotle ends up saying is that we're talking about character as the main driving force. No, you don't stop being a human being when you come into the courtroom. 
and you need to demonstrate good character. And that's going to play into a lot of things we're going to talk about today. Persuasion is something that doesn't just happen in the courtroom. It happens in more formal ways, perhaps more in dramatic ways when you're reaching the conclusion on a motion ruling or a trial. Just look around. It's everywhere. Of course, it happens wherever someone's advocating for someone else to adopt a point of view or to buy something or do something. It happens all the time in families, business, marketing, advising your friend about what to do when you think they're going to make a mistake. You know, political campaigns, on and on. Religious leaders telling you how to straighten up. People trying to sell addictive substances like alcohol or cigarettes or how to get off those substances. People selling you sugary treats and those trying to help you lose weight. You know, it's everywhere. I think it applies in many, many situations, not just in the courtroom, but it is of critical importance to lawyers. A good example of that, my wife and I have some property in Gulf Shores, Alabama. And there was a hurricane there a few months back, and one of the houses sustained some pretty significant damage. And I did most of this stuff on the phone. As a matter of fact, I did it all on the phone, talking to the contractor and getting bids and all of this. And I ended up picking a contractor to do the repairs. And halfway into the repairs, he found a bunch of other stuff that needed to be repaired, including a new roof. And so, you know, the bill ends up going up significantly. First time I met this person and I'm being told this needs to be done. After I looked at this, you know, the three elements of persuasion, I think that's a good example of this contractor. I listened to him explain to me logically why I needed to make these additional repairs. And what I'm doing is he's asking me, do I have the okay to go forward with the repairs or not? I spent about an hour talking to him the first time I met him the first day. And we talked mostly about family and kids and grandkids and all of these things. And I found out about his background and a little bit about him personally. It was a really good, neat conversation. But at the end of that conversation, I hadn't yet decided to go forward with him to have him do the work, but I trusted him. I absolutely trusted him. And that was it. After that, you know, in my mind, it was whatever he suggests or says needs to be done. I'm going to say, okay, and I'm going to have him do it. Now, I might be completely wrong. The work's not finished yet. Maybe I'm a bad judge of character, so to speak, or whatever. But I really made that decision based on trust. And I think the same applies to all of the things that you were talking about. If you're making a big decision in your life and you're depending on what somebody else is telling you, if you don't trust that person, I don't think you're going to go along with what they tell you. On the other hand, and I'm not talking about whether that person's credible or not. There's a difference between credibility and trust. Credibility means something's plausible, something's believable. Trust means you trust that person. It means you've got a firm belief in the character or the strength or the truth of that person. You know, confidence in their honesty and integrity as a person. You can see something that's credible, an article from a prominent school or a medical journal where you say, well, that's a very credible medical journal or somebody's talking on TV. Say you've got a doctor on TV that you're talking to and the doctor is credentialed from a top school or a top medical institution, you'd say to yourself, well, that's certainly, he's got credibility. And his background tells me he's credible, but it's not the same as you talking to your family doctor of 30 years, you know, who you've gone to on a regular basis. You have a profound trust in that person. And when that person tells you something that might be different from the credential person you see on TV, I think you're going to go with the person that you trust, you know, hands down. So I think out of how we've divided up persuasion, logic, emotion, and trust, I think trust carries the day at the end of the day. And here's the thing too, doing what we do as trial lawyers, 
I think it's very, very extremely difficult in the course of a trial to actually get jurors to trust you. Okay, it's very easy to lose their trust. You know, I see that happen all the time. But what you need to do is you need to be mindful of every single thing that you do in that case, your appearance, how you treat your opponent, how you respond to the judge. You know, all of those things are creating an impression with the jurors of whether or not they can trust you. Persuasion occurs every minute of every day of our lives. We're talking to somebody where maybe we're trying to persuade somebody of one thing or another. We're watching TV commercials trying to persuade us to do things or motivate us to do things. The difference between what we see on TV and what we do as trial lawyers is on TV, you're only seeing one side of the issue. It's called a commercial. It's all good. It's all positive. Nobody's telling you anything negative about it. Although the difference is that in a courtroom, you're trying to persuade the jury your side of the case is correct, and you've got an educated, intelligent, motivated person on the other side who's very skilled telling the jury the exact opposite. No, don't believe that. I think in a trial, the jury is really searching out. They want to believe somebody. They want to know what side to believe. The jury is there in a different context. They're not just flipping the channel to the next commercial. They're engaged in something that's very, very important and significant. It's significant to them. It's significant to the parties. And they're being told two different things that just don't mesh. They're the opposites. Maybe two experts looking at the same facts and evidence and coming to different conclusions. And I think under those circumstances, the jury, more so than any time else, those folks on that jury are wanting to believe somebody. They're wanting to trust you. And they're giving you that opportunity to make them trust you. And you get that opportunity. And as I said before, in a heartbeat, you can blow it. And you really need to be aware of that in everything that you're doing throughout the course of the trial. What do you do with the problem that jurors are sitting there looking at you and your opponent and they're thinking you're there arguing this because your own career success or financial success depends upon you convincing me to believe X? Eric, that's a tough, tough problem. It really is. It's true in every case. I mean, I don't know a lawyer who doesn't want to win a case because of financial reasons, because of professional reasons, it allocates people patting you on the back. You did a great job. It, it affects your reputation. There is no question that you're motivated to help your client. No question. That should be our top motivator. But these other motivators are there too. And the jurors understand that. We have a vested interest. We've got skin in the game personally. We have a financial incentive to make them believe our client side of the case. So that's something that's front and center. It's the elephant in the room. You got to, I think you need to address that. Think about creative ways to do that. I saw this done many years ago in a case. I was co-counsel with another lawyer and he did it and I've done it since. And I flat out tell the jury in, in voir dire or in opening, if I don't prove this case to you, you can send my client home with nothing. That's okay. If we don't do our job and present the evidence to you, this case isn't on your shoulders. It's on our shoulders. I think what that does is it's sort of a stereotype killer. It takes that stereotype of the greedy lawyer, you know, only there for money. And you know what? It's the truth. And they're thinking it anyway. If they don't believe you made your case, you're not going to win it. You know, no case is perfect. If your case was perfect, you probably wouldn't be trying it. We've said this before in other episodes on opening statement or voir dire or, you know, whatever. Take the worst two or three facts of your case, the worst ones, and don't 
argue about them or hide them or quibble about them. They are what they are. It is what it is. We say, well, get it out in the open, get it out in the open, but I don't hear a whole lot of people saying why it's good to get out in the open. Well, number one, the jury doesn't want to be surprised by it later. You don't want to give that opportunity to the other side to be the first one to bring it up. But I think the biggest thing really is it helps you establish credibility and hopefully a little bit of trust early on in the case. I've had several cases where there's a pre-existing injury, a back injury in a case where there's a horrible accident, your client is injured, or maybe not so horrible of an accident. Maybe it's a fender bender, a small impact, and they had a bad back before, and this is the tipping point of it. This is the thing that sent them over the top. I have started trials in opening statement literally saying my client had a terrible terrible back before this incident. And I've said it just that way. In fact, in that particular case, what I did is I took my client's prior back records, and I'd never done this before, and I read them to the jury in opening. And I laid them all out. And I said, this is not disputed in this case. We've not hidden this in this case. We've been up front. We've disclosed all of these injuries to the other side. And I said, so he had a terrible, terrible back before this accident, but that's not why we're here. We're here because he was working and able to work before and he can't now. And again, I think that's a good way to handle that. If something's bad for you in your case and you recognize that and tell the people you're looking at, hey, this is terrible for me in this case. I recognize that. I get that. But here's one way to look at it. I think that helps you. It helps gain credibility, which may lead to trust. I'm going back to logos or logic. And by that, I'm thinking of facts and argument devoid of the other things in your three-legged stool. So imagine going up to a total stranger and trying to give them an airtight case on a contentious political issue, whether it be immigration, abortion, whatever, and you give them an airtight case. What do you think the odds are that anyone on the street has ever changed their opinion based upon a logical case permeated with facts, figures, footnotes? How often does that happen without a relationship? Slim to none. I would say very, very, very unlikely that that happens. I, I will add this. I think if it's somebody that has never been presented with the issue and they have not formed an opinion about it one way or another, I think the logical facts that you present may tip them to one side or another. I think presenting facts to someone who's already formed an opinion on that issue is probably a waste of your time. Yeah, that's my experience too, that people don't change their mind based upon the logic of the case. Otherwise, I guess the, the trial might be a lot simpler. You could just give the jury bullet points about the facts and they can make up their mind, but there's more to it. I think in my first few years as a lawyer, I was a really good technical lawyer and I would go up and argue motions and give all the facts. And then I got bowled over by, and I used to be on the defense side, a lot of plaintiff attorneys came up and they cared about their client. You know, I represented an insurance company quite often or a business. They cared about their client and they emoted. And I came away after several occasions where I thought I had the better argument and I lost. And it started making me think, I think I need more than just being logical up here. You know, Eric, I've had the same experience many times, more so as a younger lawyer, because I did that too. You're taught in law school. That's where we learn the logic, the reasoning. Look at the facts. What are the elements of your case? Look at the jury instruction. And that's how I approached cases when I first started practicing. And I think a lot of young lawyers do that. And some lawyers, older lawyers do it too still. I'll say it this way. Two plus two doesn't always equal four. 
okay, in life, in, in a trial. If all we needed to do was present the facts of the case, here's the elements of the case, ladies and gentlemen, here's the facts to support each element, we win. Well, if that were the case, we wouldn't need jurors. We could plug it into a computer program and it would spit out a result. Or if both sides used logic and logic was the only thing that decided our case, we probably wouldn't have many trials. We'd look at the jury instructions and we'd look at the facts of the case and say, well, front of this car hit the back of that one and there's no dispute about it. I think one of the most important things for us trial lawyers to learn and recognize is reason and logic does not decide cases. It just doesn't. Emotion, in my opinion, is what decisions are made on. Okay, I believe that all decisions, including decisions by a jury, are based primarily on emotion. If you don't believe that, I don't think you're going to be an effective advocate for your client. Do you know anybody that would buy a car, call about the gas mileage, the maintenance record of the car, the durability, and all of this, and then buy that car without asking what color it is? I think it really is the emotional aspect of it. All of our decisions are based primarily, I think, on emotion. You know, I looked up the definition of emotion, and it's instinctive or intuitive feel as distinguished from reasoning or knowledge. How about that for a definition? As distinguished from reasoning or knowledge. It's exactly what we're talking about. And I think it's something that we all have to acknowledge and realize. And if you don't realize that, if you don't get that, that people decide things basically primarily on emotion versus the facts, I think you're heading in the wrong direction. And I think the first step in persuasion is the one that we learned in law school, and that is logic, reason. What does the law require me to prove to make this case? You list those elements out. What evidence do I have that they were negligent? What evidence, you know, that they didn't do this, they should have done this, they should have documented the record. It's something you need to do, but it's something that most lawyers, I think, a lot of lawyers stop at. They think, okay, I've got the facts together. I've met all the elements. I've met my burden and they're strong, good facts, and that doesn't always get you across the finish line. Is my point, you need to recognize that all facts aren't created equal. Some facts have an emotional component to them. Those facts will be way, way more persuasive to a person or to the jury. I'll give you an example. There are all kinds of facts out there that might not be logically or legally relevant, but they make a heck of a lot of difference in the case. I had a case years ago with a 19-year-old who got hit by a train, and he was in the vehicle with his girlfriend at the time, and we had great evidence in that case that the arm, it was a, it was a guarded crossing, and the arm wasn't working. We had evidence from a witness right behind the car that the arm was actually up, the lights weren't on, the bells weren't going. In other words, the crossing gate wasn't activated, and yet an Amtrak train flies through at 45 miles an hour and hits the car. And we did focus groups on that case. And it was interesting because a good portion of the folks on the focus group ignored the evidence that was uncontested. I mean, we did, there were no other fact witnesses to the incident, but we had several, probably a third of the group, just insisting, just insisting that this 19-year-old young man drove around the gate. And literally, they were convinced of that, and there was no evidence of it. Now, if the person driving that was a 45-year-old insurance executive, that wouldn't be the case. I don't think that you would have people disbelieving and setting aside uncontested facts in the case. So it does matter. You need to go beyond 
logic and reason. And you need to ask yourself, what is this fact going to do from an emotional standpoint? You know, we sometimes clump all that stuff together and call it the intangibles as though that might explain it in some way. It's just maybe a recognition that so much of what goes on in human cognition goes on under the surface. I've heard numbers like 95% or 99%. There's an awful lot of stuff going on underneath. You know, Eric, the first few times that I started doing focus groups, I don't know, I guess might've been 15, 20 years ago. After some of them, I asked myself out loud, why in the hell did I go to law school? (laughs) (laughs) Most of the time I will say they got to the right decision, but they didn't take the road that I was paving for. They got there a completely different way and considered things that were not in evidence and assumed things they weren't supposed to assume. I think what happens is I think jurors hear the story right in the beginning of the case, right at the get-go. And after two or three minutes, if they hear it, they've already formed an impression about what they think should happen and whose fault it was. The bottom line is you need to be aware that it's not just reason and logic. There are other facts that evoke emotions in the jurors, and you need to be aware of what those are and what emotions they may evoke. Jonathan Haidt has this uh, metaphor of a person riding an elephant as what human beings are really like. And this is under the category of social intuitionism. And so within each of us, there are two personas. And one is a big elephant. And he says, that's most of us. That includes our automatic processes, including emotion and intuition. And then on top of that elephant is a tiny writer who he calls as a lawyer-like persona, who can fabricate a post hoc explanation for what the elephant wants to do. Maybe that person on top can whisper in the elephant's ear and try to steer it a little bit, but that's his metaphor of who we all are, that we're driven so much by emotion, and we can try a little bit, steer a little bit this way and that way, but that elephant is usually going to get its way. That's a good analogy. We talk about bias, juror bias all the time, and I think emotion is the source of most bias that we see in jurors. If you look, Eric, at all of the lawyer books that are out there, techniques and how to do opening and how to do close and how to present your opening and how to structure it and all of those things, it's emotion-based. I had a case recently, a couple months ago, where it was a wrongful death case and the gentleman who died, I represented his three daughters in the case and he was military. He was actually in the active Air Force at the time of his death and we had photos and there was actually a motion in limine to keep out pictures of him in his uniform. As a matter of fact, I think it was more than that. They wanted to keep out the fact that he was in the Air Force, that he made a career out of serving in the Air Force. And, you know, on the one hand, you could say, well, logically, they can talk about what his wages were, right? And they can talk about the accident and the facts and what he was doing for a living or what he had been doing for a living might not matter. And as a matter of fact, there wasn't a wage loss claim in the case. And that's what they argued. They argued that it's just not relevant. And why was that a big deal for him? Well, because if this guy was unemployed for big lengths of time and jumped from job to job, and even though there was no economic component to the case, same facts, they know, and we know too, that the results are going to be way, way different depending on what this person did for a living and who he was. So the question to you is, are we manipulators? Is that what we are? Are we trying to manipulate and tug at people's emotion strings to get results? Is it improper to recognize that people decide things on emotions and to present your case and frame it in a way that takes advantage of that? 
you're causing me to think about Aristotle and the rules again, because I would say that to some extent that you could veer into a territory that I would consider inappropriate, manipulative, but we are there to represent our clients and to, you know, get them a result that works. And the jury's going to make the decision. We're there to present information to the jury. What we do representing people who've been injured, the biggest component of damages include emotional harms. We have to address emotions in our cases because from a legal logical standpoint, that emotional harms are compensable. If somebody is paralyzed, they can't walk, they can't get out of bed for the rest of their life, they've lost their independence, their dignity, you're going to be asking for compensation for those things. You know, those are human elements. I mean, it's not a row of numbers and look at the tax return, look at the W-2, the loss of a spouse or a child or loved one, right? I mean, a jury's asked to compensate for that. That is an emotional harm, an emotional loss. So it is part of our job to understand and be able to present emotional harms because that's part of the claims that we're representing our clients for. You know, Eric, I sum up this whole issue is your case is where your heart is. It's kind of like what I was saying before. Get up in front of a jury and try to convince them of something that you don't truly believe in and see how you do, okay? And the flip side is when you have a case and you are absolutely, you're just right. You're on the right side of the issue morally, ethically. It's just the right thing. And what they did was absolutely wrong. In that circumstance, I feel invincible, like I can't lose. I mean, nothing phases me, just absolutely nothing. I feel bulletproof. And that's the way it should be. You don't need a perfect case to be in the right. You can have a perfect case with some tough facts. But the bottom line is you need to really believe in your case in order to present it persuasively. It's the whole heart-mind analogy. I think it's heart first, then mind. You got to reach people's hearts first and address their emotions. But you also need to provide them with something that's logical and reasonable. You need to do both, but if you just concentrate on the rational and logical, I think you're going to be disappointed more than you than you believe. There's another elephant in the room here, and that's something that we keep coming back to, case selection. So if you blow the case selection, if you take a case where you think, man, this is rickety. I don't know if I should take it. I don't know if I believe this potential client entirely. I wonder if they're malingering, and you take the case you're going to have to ride that thing all the way through and it'll show, right? You know, if you doubt your own client, you doubt your own case, you won't have that huge, you know, that wind on your sail that you do have when you really do believe in your client, you believe in your case. You know, Eric, I think what you've done is you've summed up our entire focus by pointing out the number one and most important trial technique secret. And that is just take really good cases. <laughs> I think that's it. I mean, if you take good cases, you're not going to have any trouble convincing people. You're going to be passionate about it. You're going to believe in it. Again, the three things that we're talking about, logic, emotion, and trust, I think trust is the key and it's the most important. And it's something that you need to be aware of at every aspect from the beginning of the case, case selection, all the way to the end. You got to work really, really hard to gain somebody's trust. And sometimes you do everything right and you still don't gain their trust. But if you're focused on doing that all the time, I think you're going to do a great job for your client and end up getting way better results than you otherwise would. Agreed. So that sounds like a wrap. We'll be back with more episodes, including more episodes on persuasion. 
But that's it for today. Thanks for joining us. Hope you enjoyed this one. I'm Eric Beef. This is John Simon. See you next time. The Jury is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law and tune in to the other podcasts in the Simon Law Firm library, including Heels in the Courtroom, a lively look at life and law from a female point of view, and Results Don't Lie, a legal drama podcast about the nation's first opioid overprescription medical malpractice case. Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.